Automated Podcast. Hi there, everybody. I'm Mark Verbenkov, host of the Automated Podcast, and I want to welcome you to the first year's final episode. So I will be returning to Canada for the month of December, and as I need to initially quarantine before spending time with family, I will be in a typical Canadian cabin in the woods, chopping firewood with limited tech access. So the podcast will have a little break, but we'll be back in January with new interesting discussions on the future of tech and automation. So it has been a really fun and interesting year putting this podcast together and having on what I think are many excellent guests. And I hope that you have derived as much value from the discussions as I have and are looking forward to more after the holidays. But uh, on to this week's episode. So this week, I'm happy to have my very first return guest uh, back onto the podcast. This is Surf Dusboch and his colleague Jurian Hammer from the Rathenau Institute in the Netherlands to talk about voice technology and its impact on society. Uh, for voice tech, think uh, you know Alexa, uh, smart home systems, and uh, different kind of AI assistants. So we discuss the negative and positive repercussions that this tech will have, what governments can do to regulate or deal with it, and how the future might look like when it becomes ubiquitous. So Cerf uh, studied liberal arts and sciences at the University College of Maastricht, focusing on sustainability and technological innovation. During his master's uh, European studies on society, science, and technology, he explored the societal issues regarding the automation of labor, and he is currently working on the theme of digital society and focuses on societal issues regarding virtual, augmented reality, and voice assistance. Jurian, on the other hand, studied law and philosophy and attained a PhD at Utrecht University in 2017. He wrote his dissertation on the political meaning of human rights and conducted research at the London School of Economics, Government and Law. So Jurian researches various topics in the realm of digital technology, ethics, and human rights. He explores developments in the field of artificial intelligence, voice technology, surveillance technology, and offensive cyber capabilities. Vital questions with regard to these subjects are the way these technologies can change society and how society should respond in order to handle such changes appropriately. Well, I am here today with Surf and Jurian from the Rathenau Institute. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for coming on to the podcast. And Surf, this is the uh, second time that you're on. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to be here. Uh, so I know that uh, you discussed what the Rathenau Institute did in the previous episode that you're on, Surf, but for those that didn't have a chance to uh, hear that episode, maybe you could just briefly, in a few sentences, what the Rathenau Institute does, because I think it's quite interesting and relevant for the podcast itself. So basically, it's a, it's a research institute currently in The Hague, and we do research on innovations, uh, science, uh, and technology, and mostly look at what the societal impact and ethical concerns are with uh, new technologies and uh, scientific developments. And in that, we also uh, advise parliament and want to update the public with new information so that these debates can be held uh, in a proper manner and that most people are of them. I think it's a very interesting organization and what you do. And we will get into the kind of recommendations for government and for other uh, stakeholders a little bit later on. But uh, as we're talking about uh, voice technology today, maybe I can get both of you to give a, a brief introduction to how you got interested in this initially, because I, I would assume it's not just uh, a project that's laid on your desk, but there's actually some kind of personal interest in getting involved in voice technology and doing research on that. 
Yeah, uh, sure. Well, because I think first off, it is actually the, a little bit that it started off with the working program, because we have the working program of the Rathenau Institute that looks at what type of technologies are emerging, what types of issues are coming up. Um, so within that, there is a category of immer immersive technologies. And we already talked about AR and VR in another podcast. Mm -hmm. But part of that is also speech technology. Um, so uh, with uh, signaling that speech technology came up, um, the Ratner Institute looked into that and therefore uh, it started the project on speech. But I think for my personal interest, uh, one of the first things that I looked into was uh, some of the people that are really excited about speech technology. And they said that like, typing and um, yeah, working with the mouse and swiping and that kind of stuff. We always had to learn the language of uh, the computer. And now for the first time, it was the computer learning our language. Uh, and I found that to re be a really interesting statement. Uh, if that is the case, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But I think that uh, that sparked my interest at first. Um, I'm curious, uh, Jurian, what was your first interest? Well, what fascinates me, not only about voice technology, but also about AR and VR, is that it brings digital technology that much closer to our everyday lives and our everyday actions, right? So you have this picture of, well, I'm going to interact with digital world. I should, you know, go to a computer and open it and type. And that's really becoming, um, well, outdated. Uh, I mean, now... Uh, you're standing in the kitchen and it's possible to talk to the digital world, right? And if you are wearing AR glasses and you're looking, um, you're looking at your car, you'll, you can get all kinds of information immediately and ask questions immediately. So this kind of deep immersion in the digital world, which brings it that much closer and that much more kind of immediate into our lives, uh, that's what really uh, struck me as interesting and important uh, to research. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree further with you. Uh, in preparing for this discussion, I was reading about you know, something like 40% of all U.S. households already have a smart speaker that they're using. I know that all of us use smartphones that have voice assistants uh, already embedded into them. But maybe if you could kind of you know, set the stage for, for the European audience here, uh, you know, how many smart speakers are there in Europe? And are there any kind of projections that, you know, 80% or 90% of us will have smart speakers in our homes uh, in the next 10 years or so? Um, yeah, so uh, the numbers are um, mostly now for, like, like you said, for the US, it's almost one third of the US that has smart speakers. Um, and for the Netherlands, it's now around 19% which is up from 5% in uh, 2018. So it got, got oh, wow. quite of a big leap. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some other countries like, uh, but I think those are more numbers from 2019. Like the UK is like around 21, uh, Germany around 12. Uh, and I think when we're talking about um, China, for example, that was about 22%, but that was again then on, only in 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's much more now. Um, but one of the interesting things is that uh, when you have a smart speaker, if a person has a smart speaker, they tend to use it also more on mobile phones, because like you said uh, very well, uh, the smart assistants or voice assistants are already present on mobile phones. So a lot of people have uh, access to a voice assistant. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess, I mean, it's quite obvious that this, this trend of using voice assistance is growing significantly. In your research, was there any projection over the next, say, 10 years or so as the state of voice? Like, will it become ubiquitous? Uh, will we all just naturally accept this? Or, or will there still be some places where, say, uh, voice assistance and, and voice in general won't be used? Well, that depends on whether certain roadblocks can be overcome, right? So, so voice will become ubiquitous if it is actually able to be this broadly useful companion, right? So because voice technology often comes in the form of a cognitive assistant uh, that you can talk to and that can perform all kinds of tasks for you. And we see that certain kinds of tasks, I mean, uh, for instance, uh, asking your car, you know, to, to put up the, the navigation and go somewhere, right? That works brilliantly and it's becoming ubiquitous. But there are other kinds of, uh, other kinds of tasks. Uh, take, for instance, just having a really fun and natural conversation uh, with a cognitive assistant where you could say, well, there's a lot of development, but we're not actually that sure that we're going to be there, right, in 10 years, that everyone will think it is fun to engage with a cognitive assistant. So it really depends on whether the technology is able to take up all these different tasks and if it is able to do that, it will definitely become ubiquitous. Okay. Yeah. So. yeah and, and adding to that, it's, it's not only the, the difference in tasks, it's also the difference in, in language. Because, uh, of course, the U.S. Is, uh, has more of the smart speakers and is further developed because they started earlier. But it's also because of a lot of data that is available on the, the English language. And also why many of the other countries, uh, for example, here in Europe, are uh, a little bit more behind on, on the development of this technology. So uh, the, the main point to take away is that speech technology is not just one thing, but it really depends on the situation, on the language and on the tasks. Right. And that makes perfect sense why perhaps China is already ahead of some European countries and probably why it might overtake many of the European countries if they have the one language that's uh, spoken at a general macro level. I, I do want to talk uh, very briefly about the technology itself. And I think it's going to be quite relevant for any kind of company moving forward is, you know, how is a specific product brand chosen, right? If you say, um, you know, Siri, I want cookies, for instance. Uh, how does Siri choose the the kind of cookie that it recommends or any other product? Yeah, so mostly this is uh, based on power dynamics, I think, because it's and also uh, on the, the connection that one company has to the not another company, because these companies or the bigger companies, for example, Google and Amazon that have those smart speakers, they are platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you can go on that platform if your company uh, wants to sell some products or wants to provide services. And once you're on the platform, you can, uh, yeah, then you have your audience. But there's a big power play, for example, when you want to have Spotify, which is another big platform on your uh, product uh, or on the platform. Uh, so uh, because that is a big platform in itself. So for the smaller companies to get in there, uh, it's harder than for bigger companies and when we're talking about the example that you gave, for example, shopping, then it's mostly on uh, default brands. So when you say you want a cookie, for example, what would be the default uh, cookie? There are many different kinds, right? Mm -hmm. So again, there, it's 
uh, a matter of the trade that has been done before with, yeah, what kind of connections do they have to another company? And with that, that's more the shopping variant, but you also have the information uh, variation, which is that all of the companies now need to be voice first, which means that uh, the websites need to be updated so that smart speakers can uh, look into them so that voice assistants can actually mm -hmm. scroll through the pages and give a correct answer. Because if it's not set up that way, then they will not be found, which is similar to the, the SEO or the, the Google search engine uh, in that regard. To be really the first uh, answer that pops up will become uh, a bigger battle. Right. So it's almost like there's a new layer in which uh, businesses, brands, products, et cetera, uh, need to be aware of in order to be even competitive or not even competitive, but relevant on the market itself. Um, I can see how, you know, smaller brands that don't have uh, the kind of capital to invest in, in things like this, uh, they might be at a disadvantage compared to the larger brands, like you were saying, Spotify or, uh, you know, uh, whatever kind of large cookie manufacturer is out there, they would have uh, significantly more power resources, etc., to make themselves the default choice for these uh, smart speakers. Um, I, I guess this this is a natural segue into kind of the problems and concerns that we have with this technology, which I think you guys uh, focus quite a bit in your research. What kind of problems, uh, I mean, I guess the most apparent one is the destruction or at least the reduced capability to compete on the open market for smaller brands uh, and then what it means for the, the communities that, that have these small brands in them. Uh, but uh, maybe you guys can touch on a few other of the concerns and problems that you have found out with, uh, with this technology. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I do want to emphasize, and I think I think you're very right to point out that this whole battle of kind of becoming the default option is somewhat unprecedented, right? Mm. I mean, the whole idea of a Google search bar is that you have priorities and you have some things uh, higher on the list, some things lower on the list, but there's a lot on the list. And so there is this idea Right, that if you are a consumer or if you are a citizen, that you kind of still have control over lots of options, you're being broadly informed. And if you move to a world of defaults, uh, then you can ask the question, well, it's certainly easier because you can just say, I you know, order a cookie or just ask a question, get an answer. But is it really making us more autonomous? If we live in a world where everything around us is a default option, and where we actually have to work harder to get a variance of options. So, so that is, you know, so you can approach that question of a default from the kind of the, the, the competition side, but there's also kind of the citizen side to it, right? We want the digital world to give us options and to make, to make us more autonomous in our choices, but does it actually do that if it's a world of default options? Right. Yeah. I would, I would easily say no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, very bluntly. Um, uh, Surf, do you have any other points to that or want to bring up uh, another uh, concern that you've seen with this technology? Well, I think uh, one thing to get out, out of the way anyway is, is the, the elephant in the room that has been discussed uh, many times before is, of course, also the privacy concern, but also uh, the, a little bit of the ignorance of how technology works. So I have been in the, the voice community a little bit more uh, during our research. And there were really two ways of, of viewing how uh, the privacy concern went because uh, like 
probably many of you know and the listeners know was that for smart speakers, people were listening in, which basically means that when you say the wake word, which is, for example, Alexa, and then do this and that, um, that a really small percentage of that goes onto the cloud and then is also being uh, listened to uh, for product development and for updating um, the, the algorithms uh, in order to make it work. So for one side, many of the people in the voice community were like, of, of course, this is happening. This is, uh, this is very clear. But the outrage that popped up um, in the general public was really a big privacy concern and, and rightly so. But the communication from the bigger companies that this was actually happening was, thing, I think, uh, the biggest problem with that because they didn't uh, tell or communicate correctly about that. And that's why there was this uh, confusion among this whole privacy concern. And I think it's still a, a very important discussion to have, mostly because these smart speakers, at least, are in our home and when we're talking about smartphones, we have them constantly with us. Uh, so if the communication about privacy is not um, being done correctly, then there can be a, a chilling effect. Like there is somebody in my home right now or some entity which always listens to me. Am I then really expressing myself in the way that I want to or am I not? And when I invite some other people into my room, do I then have to say, oh, well, there is, a, there is a Google Home in my apartment. Should I tell you or not? Are you comfortable with that? Those questions arise, which I think is a very interesting discussion to have moving forward. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, both a, a scary idea to have in one's head, but also, a, as you said, a highly relevant one. Because, yeah, if you're uncomfortable interacting with other people or, or just say being yourself in an authentic manner when you're say alone at home or just with one or two friends, uh, then this technology is having a drastic impact on the social interactions and just the way of living in, in all the places that it would be implemented in, which I think is quite a profound shift in the way that we would be dealing with each other in the future, no? Yeah, definitely. And it's it's really it really comes down to the trust we have in the technology and the developers of this technology, right? So how is that trust going to look like in five or 10 years? Are, we, are things arranged in such a way that there is this trust? Uh, we don't think there will be abuse. Uh, we think there are the, the rules are in place, but we don't mind if there's a smart speaker in the background and we're visiting someone. Or is, will there be a world in which, we're, in which we begin the conversation with well, are there microphones and cameras around? Mm -hmm. All right, uh, let's turn them off uh, and, uh, and you know, let's be together and have a private life. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I can't say right now which way we're going. I mean, there are serious concerns and you see that companies are trying to address them, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to say, well, they're going to address them in such a way definitely uh, that, that that this trust will be there in five years or in 10 years. I can, I can imagine a future where this trust will definitely erode uh, and where we, where we do want to just turn off the microphone, uh, turn off the camera uh, and, and have a private life. Yeah, and, and I think this is something that we're seeing maybe more clearly now in the United States where we have 
like discussions of breaking up these monopolies like Facebook and Google, et cetera, where I think for the majority of people who are paying attention to this, the trust in these larger entities has been eroding uh, substantially over the last only few years, right? Maybe the, uh, the big event was Cambridge Analytica and the yeah. follow that came from there. Um, but I think there's also another point to this where these larger companies have their own security for their own data. Whereas say, if, if this data were to be uh, collected by other smaller entities, they might not have the capability to protect that data from say cyber attacks. Uh, and this kind of leads to my question, like how likely is it that um, there are nefarious agents listening to you rather than just you know these large tech companies that are listening to you uh, speaking in your home to collect data to, in order to sell you other things. But what are the chances, uh, maybe now and in the future, that there are, say, foreign agents that are listening to the, the conversations of people in their homes or of senators mm. or people yeah, in yeah. parliament, et cetera? What, what's the uh, chances of that happening? Well, I think what's really important to keep in mind is that is that people who want to abuse the technology have specific targets, uh, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, so it was a fascinating art, Dutch article about the uh, intelligence services of our military saying to, to Dutch companies, if you're going to discuss business secrets, lock up your phones, put away <laughs> right. the microphones. You can't guarantee the security. You just can't. So just don't, don't try it. Don't do it. And uh, I think what this reflects is that even though, you know, cybersecurity has been on the agenda for, well, well over a decade now, uh, we're not succeeding in making it really secure uh, if there is a competent uh, adversarial agent uh, who wants to hack you. And if you have information, if you have secrets that are of interest to that, uh, to that agent, for instance, China, uh, so, so if you are a big company with a lucrative plan, or if you are a Chinese citizen living abroad, then you may well be a target and you may well not be able to protect yourself fully. Our own intelligence service is saying, you know, just don't risk it. Okay. It's really hard to make yourself uh, secure enough. Let me add uh, one more point to that and which adds, I think, a little bit more weight to the discussion as well, which is that uh, voice technology really unlocks a new type of data as well. It's not, not only the data that we're, that we're used to, like you talked about with uh, Cambridge Analytica, but um, one of the most fascinating findings I found when I went into this research is that the voice itself has a lot of information in it as well. And that is what companies and also scientists are working on uh, unlocking or checking how that actually works. So, for example, uh, most of the technologies are working to check your voice and put it into text so that we can understand what the communication is. But it's also how a person says something, which because now we're talking and we can distinguish that we're all uh, males and might uh, suggest that we're in a certain range for age group. Mm -hmm. um, but also sometimes when we're having somebody on the phone, I can distinguish actually who it is as well. Uh, or even if somebody is uh, drunk or sleepy, we can all do this by ourselves, but the companies are working on this kind of information extraction as well. And once all the smart speaker companies are having all these data and having these um, audio tracks, those speech tracks, they're sitting on a much bigger goldmine of information that, that was previously thought. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I hadn't really considered the fact that voice is much more data rich rather than just typing in a, a question into Google. If you actually say it, you're conveying so much more information than, than just the basic text. Um, yeah, which can also be used for, for really good purposes, of course, because one example is uh, the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, so they're really taking uh, recordings and checking out if we can signal or diagnose some really early corona symptoms because it has something to do with the lungs and the speech that we might not be able to detect and then help um, yeah, battle the, the pandemic a little bit as well. So I think uh, that should not be forgotten as well. Yeah, I guess like any technology, it's a double-edged sword, right? There's good and bad implementations of it. What, one of the questions that um, I was thinking about when uh, you were talking, Jurian, was there, there, there seems to be this ability to speak to these devices that seems to be getting easier and easier. One of the articles that I came across while uh, preparing for this was it's typically women's voice that are used in these, uh, say, Siri or um, the other smart speakers at the home. Um, mm. Was there a specific reason to choose a woman's voice compared to a male's voice or, or a completely neutral voice? I think so. And there's certainly bias there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so it isn't a surprise, whether intentionally or unintentionally, uh, that there are all these submissive, uh, spontaneous uh, women uh, gladly taking our instructions, really wanting to be of help and of service. I mean, this is, this is a huge stereotype. And this speaks to the cultural impact of voice technology, which is being, uh, these points are really being raised now, right? Uh, if these are our new conversational partners, then we want them to reflect, uh, you know, real people and society in kind of all its broadness and diversity. And that's not the situation we have now. The situation we have now, mo still mostly, uh, although developers are working on options to kind of diversify, there's still this dominant idea of the, you know, uh, willingly helpful and kind of submissive lady, gentle lady, uh, who is there to assist us. Right. And I would assume that this is uh, predominantly in order to help manipulate or nudge the user to say buy more products or, or spend more on these apps, et cetera, uh, to kind of facilitate that, that interaction or decrease the friction in that interaction to just spend more money to make these uh, tech giants a little bit more money. Yeah, yeah. And this engagement point can catalyze it, right? So, so they want us to be more engaged with a certain stereotype. So then we are more engaged with a certain stereotype and that stereotype will impact our thinking more. And at some point, we'll be talking to, I don't know, another woman who has a, a feisty character and uh, who is not there to help us at all, but who is there to challenge us. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then we could feel really uncomfortable because that's not what we're used to. We're used to Siri and Siri doesn't treat me that way. This is how culture works. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the, the prime examples for the disaster of Apple was when some people asked or said to Siri, like, Siri, you are a slut. The response was, I'd blush if I could, taking it as a compliment, hmm. which really yeah, emphasized that it was male white uh, developers in Silicon Valley that put that in because otherwise that, of course, wouldn't happen at all. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, so of course, this is concerning, but I think also the 
perhaps just a philosophically interesting point is that even just a simple thing of having uh, one gender's voice versus the other being used in such a way will have potentially such a drastic impact on the population, especially if we see this kind of future vision of voice tech being kind of ubiquitous in the next, I don't know, pick a number, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, we see how digital technology impacts our culture. I mean, look at social media and our public debate, which is crucial to our culture and how it functions. We see the impact can be huge and have so much unintended consequences. And we have to try to get ahead of that. So if you see uh, voice technology uh, becoming more and more popular, you have to ask these cultural questions, look at the cultural impact and try to be, well, a little bit more on time in kind of course correcting uh, and, and trying to make it contribute to a richer culture and not you know, demolishing something that, that actually we should hold, hold dear. You see the impact also vice versa, right? So dis- discussions are being held more often, which also leads to uh, now that you can choose more options of voices, different male voices, different female voices, and that there is even a development of a general, gender neutral voice as well. Okay, so there are already some attempts to remedy this potential large societal problem. Okay, so it seems like we've discussed several of these concerns about the technology. Um, I don't think we want to get the audience too depressed about the future of voice. Uh, there was this one point about the, the potential benefit of it, specifically with uh, you know, COVID tracing. But uh, I know that uh, the Rathenau Institute and your research always tries to propose recommendations for government and for other stakeholders. Maybe we can uh, jump into that if there's nothing else that we want to discuss uh, concerning the problems. Yeah, that's uh, that's fine by me. I think I think one of the interesting things is we touched upon that a bit already. Uh, is uh, how are you going to get the data to, to train these uh, to train these voice systems? And uh, there is a risk that you know certain groups aren't properly well in the end serviced by these systems uh, because their data isn't you know represented enough uh, in the collection. And and then you can, for instance, think about uh, children or older people. Uh, you know, not tech-savvy young people who are, you know, 25 years old. But it brings a challenge with it, which is how do you collect this data in a responsible manner? Because what we don't, do not want and absolutely should avoid is kind of exploiting, you know, the privacy of, of children to get our uh, databases up to date. So what we propose is that the government gets involved here and that the government sets up proper procedures to make a collective voice database on which you can build software, which is inclusive, which is diverse, uh, which pays attention to different accents, which might not be that interesting to big developers and uh, and step in here uh, so that you have the proper data, but you also have proper procedures to get it. Um, and you, you, know, you avoid the exploitation, which can, which can occur if developers are really keen on, on getting uh, their data sample more representative. I think what you're in touch upon with uh, with uh, the more elderly people. I mean, there was a what was a Dutch experiment already done as well. So when it is actually inclusive, when it is actually helping, um, voice technology can be uh, very useful. For example, for seniors, that was uh, an experiment with some smart speakers that um, seniors got, and they really felt that they could use that technology in a, in a much easier and better way and were much more self-reliant. Um, so in that sense, uh, because you started off not to uh, scare too many people out there, many really good developments in that regard as well. 
And um, maybe one of the, the questions that I have to follow up from all this is, uh, so these, these are obvious, uh, you know, terrific recommendations for the government to put into place. What's the likeliness of them actually being put into place um, compared to, as you know, we were talking about at the beginning, these kind of power dynamics, even just for the kind of the, the default product or the default app. But uh, I think we are now seeing quite a large power grab with a lot of these large tech giants out there that have uh, tremendous influence on governments across the world. So uh, maybe it's a bit of a, a tricky uh, answer to, to give, but you know, we have these recommendations for governments. We kind of know at least one path to go down, but what's the likeliness that these tech giants will influence those uh, recommendations and, and not have them being put into place? So I would say... There are two things the government has to do, right? So the government has to be a competent regulator of technology and the government has to be a builder of, techno of a technological society. And the development we've seen over the past 10 years is that especially in Europe, the government has become more competent in regulating, also just more gutsy, right? So especially on the EU level, most recently with influencers and advertising regulation, uh, you see the, the EU really stepping up and, 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 and laying down the law. And this, this has a tremendous impact also, uh, also globally. Uh, people, uh, other countries are taking their lead and also companies uh, are not operating or not solely operating in Europe are taking their lead from this new regulation uh, which is being drafted. So I think that's very, you can be optimistic about that. You can be positive about that. There is a powerful lobby going on but you see, especially the EU stepping up as a regulator. I think it's much more difficult uh, for governments to have the competence to step up as a builder of, you know, digital society, which setting up a database, you know, it, it would be an example of that. You can't get that just by regulating. You have to, you have to build stuff. You have to invest, take matters into your own hands. And there, I think we have much further to go. And that means that there will be a big dependency still on these big technological companies that do have the competence to build digital society. Uh, and, and that will pose significant uh, challenges. So, so that would be my answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would see that there might be a, a conflict of interest at the start if, if you know, these databases are, are to be created. But if it's the big tech giants that only are the only ones that have the capabilities, uh, it, might be, it might be a bit problematic. Yeah, I think that it's also that, that you can actually promote uh, doing it in a way together. And uh, because also governments can, like Jürgen said, uh, facilitate. Uh, one example is that in Singapore, they actually build a national speech corpus uh, so that smaller companies can build on the more dialect uh, Singaporean language uh, and that they're not too much dependent on the bigger companies, which then increases, of course, the competition and, uh, and, and how the market is operating. And so that's also why I think a discussion is, is, is needed uh, in collaboration of having the government there, talking with um, uh, civilians, with uh, with developers and the bigger companies and to do in fact something like that together okay very interesting yeah so um i guess when i was reading these articles to prepare for the discussion uh there seemed to be quite a bit of of negative outlook but if if you guys have looked into it significantly more and you say that there is this kind of positive path forward uh maybe i'm a little bit more reassured about this technology now than, than before um 
the central theme of this podcast itself is, you know, how does this technology impact jobs? Uh, we've touched on it, I think, here and there, uh, but I kind of just want to open the floor to either or to both of you to explore this, you know, how will voice impact jobs currently or in the uh, next couple, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so? Yeah, I would say, but Sarah, if you can, you, you should add to that. So what they're really trying to get into, for instance, considering healthcare, what they're really trying to get into is uh, that if you have a question about your health or about a certain recipe or about your medical data, that you can call the hospital, you will talk to a cognitive assistant and that assistant will give you enough of an answer to satisfy you, right? Mm. And so that would be huge if kind of the first line of contact between uh, patients and hospitals would be cognitive assistance. And the same, uh, the same goes to, uh, for other types of call centers. So the potential to replace jobs is pretty huge. Mm -hmm. The question is whether they will be really be able to kind of get the competence on these specific tasks, right? So if you're talking about the medical context, uh, are these systems capable of really learning medical mm -hmm. terminology? Uh, and are they going to be flexible enough to, to engage in a good way with people who are calling? And companies are working very hard uh, to, to attain these goals. And if you look at the money that's going in, it's very, it's, I would not be surprised if, if, you know, in five or 10 years, they would succeed. And then the potential, uh, potential impact on jobs would be pretty substantial, I would say. Yeah, and with that, it's also the the tasks that uh, some of these uh, technologies can take over. So it's not not the full jobs, because when you're talking about speech technology, mostly we think about uh, assistance. But um, for example, transcription software is also um, uh, voice technology, setting it over into um, into text, uh, which is getting much better as well for analyzing uh, full meetings, uh, which can take over many administrative tasks. And other uh, maybe translating tasks, for example, the, the Skype call translation, like instant translation from one uh, language to another is another way that it can take over potentially some jobs, but mostly uh, also some tasks and, and make uh, the life of some people uh, much easier as well. So I, I think that this kind of augmentation of the tasks, right? Not not the entire job itself, but the tasks within those jobs is uh, key and will continue to come out in many of the industries that we see, uh, you know, being talked about in this podcast. I, I do want to go back to the the discussion of the the hospitals itself because it really seems like that might be one of the more challenging uh, industries to automate, or at least that basic first person on the scene support to somebody who needs mm -hmm. medical attention. But I could. I could definitely envision that this is being used in all sorts of places where you have to call in to get information from a business, from a public institution. I, I mean, I, I live here in Barcelona and the amount of times that you have to phone the, the city hall just for basic information is quite numerous. I could very well imagine that you could just pick up a phone and rather than talking to these annoying um uh, recordings, voice recordings that you're actually able to engage with a with an AI voice bot uh, that would be able to give you the information that you need and maybe even schedule a meeting when you can go and see the human representative at the city hall or wherever else that this is going to be implemented. But to me, it just seems like the hospital is kind of one of the more challenging places where there are significantly 
maybe more low-hanging fruit opportunities on, on the horizon? Yeah, well, I wouldn't underestimate it. So, so, the, so the reason I mention it is because of the investment that you see okay. uh, from the big tech companies. They really want to get into this, and uh, and it's because there are a lot of so so not just uh, you know not I have an emergency and I want to call someone, um, but rather you know all these basic information questions. There are a lot of those as well in the medical sector, right? I've taken some sort of basic test and I just want to hear my results and. Um, Am I COVID positive or not? So there's a lot of these, you know, the simpler tasks as well. But I completely agree with you. Uh, so, so in this kind of, you know, call service kind of world, this could be a major development. Don't forget also about the, the way of automation, right? We talked about uh, also recognizing somebody's voice, which can be also, also a way of biometric identification so that that is automated as well. You don't have to fill out your forms or ask uh, when you were born, uh, like all those types of information, which speeds up some of that process as well. But of course, there are some um, issues that come along with that right away as well. Right, right. Yeah, that's clear. I, I think it, I think it also makes more sense. You know, of course, we're living in a COVID era, and if all the money, or maybe not all, but if a vast uh, majority of the money is being invested into the healthcare system, it makes sense that that might be one of the first places to uh, to have this kind of automated AI voice assistant implemented in many of these hospitals. Um, I, I do see that the time is kind of running out here. Uh, maybe one of the last things that we can touch on is kind of the, the future vision that you guys have for voice technology, right? Uh, keep putting out these 10 to 15 year examples. But one of the things that I saw was this uh, Google duplex, uh, which I think was one of the viral videos uh, a few years ago where uh, you, you speak into your phone and you say, Google, book me a hairdresser appointment. And the Google voice assistant sends out the call and has a conversation with the hairdresser and books the, the actual uh, appointment where all you do is input a command. How far away are we from, from seeing that? Is that already out there? Is that already visible for some people? Or is this really what we're going to be moving into over the next 10 to 15 years? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, yeah, prominent example. But there's also it's you have to keep in mind that that's a very specific task to uh, to do. So all that effort that is going in there to make that uh, really effortlessly and seemingly human, that's a lot of effort putting into one task. And with that example. Uh, there's also like it has been used a couple of times, but when uh, it often uh, fails when people are using it, they're directly um, connected to somebody else who is who is actually a person uh, to continue the conversation further. But of course, the developments are coming, uh, and it's uh, becoming better as well, which for me really signals another ethical uh, discussion like when do you actually know that somebody is human or not uh, because mm -hmm. afterwards google also added you're now talking with the google assistant which is i think a very key point because when do you know uh, that it's a person or not uh, and how do we deal with that will be an upcoming concern yeah and if i can add to that if you're looking ahead 10 15 years part of the discussion will be technological advances but a large part of the discussion maybe the major part of the discussion will be what kind of culture do we actually want 
uh, to live in, how do we actually want to interact with computers? So if you look at uh, bots on Twitter, for instance, I don't think a lot of people are very happy and enthusiastic about that. I mean, it's a very successful example of automating something. Um, but you know, if you discover that someone is, is actually a bot, yeah, that doesn't sit well. It doesn't really match with the kind of public culture that we want to have. So a large part of this uh, is going to depend on how do we actually want to interact with computers in our culture. And that will have a major influence on the kind of applications that will break through and, and that will be embraced uh, by the public. Well, I don't think that there's a better question to end on. <laughs> um, I, I want to thank both of you for coming onto the podcast. Very much appreciate your time and the discussion points that were brought up. I will have, of course, your, your profiles with the Rathenau Institute in the show notes. There is already a report that discusses uh, voice tech, but it's in Dutch. Uh, I believe that there's an English version coming out. Do you have any uh, ETA uh, on that? I would say two months or so, that would be feasible. Uh, but it depends. They're busy in, in the communication department. Right. Okay. Well, when uh, when it's out there, uh, shoot me an email and I'll put it up on the show notes as well. Because I think that the, um, uh, the report would definitely go into uh, further elaboration of the points that we talked about. And I think that this is, you know, as we discussed in the conversation, quite an important uh, technology for, for business, but, you know, for the also for kind of greater societal impacts that it could bring out in the next couple of years. So I think it would be very interesting for many audience members to, to look into this. All right. Just thank you very much for both of you for coming on. I uh, really appreciate your time. And, yeah, thanks uh, for having us. And I guess if there's another future report in, uh, in the next uh, couple of months or years or something like that, I'd be happy to have uh, one or both of you back on. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can leave a like or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, feel free to do so over Twitter or LinkedIn by searching for Automated Podcast. On the website, automatedpodcast.org, you can leave a comment on any of the episodes, read the transcripts, and look at the sources I use in all of these episodes. There are also blog articles and additional resources and information on this topic and podcast if you are looking for more. See you next week. The Automated Podcast.